So here we are, last full day of the retreat. That day, I'm sure all of you had moments of when is it coming? When will it be here? Those endless days in the middle of our practice period. But I always find retreats have this same trajectory where it can seem like there's this slow, slow start and we pass this tipping point and it's gone in the blink of an eye. Really. And I don't know if you've had that experience here. And you can really, from this place right now, appreciate the seclusion and the calm that we've developed as we open up our practice a little more, include some talking. Um, You can feel the energy rising. And our practice isn't about not having energy, you know, that we should always be calm, cool, and collected, but that we know how to work skillfully with the energy that's there when it's appropriate to open up, to talk, to communicate, and when it's not appropriate. And just to remind you, now, from through tomorrow morning, is not appropriate. The guideline was, the instruction was to come back into the silence because there's something so valuable about opening up a little bit and then coming back and settling down and just learning how to do that for ourselves. So, in another reminder, I'll remind you at the end as well about how valuable that is for our own practice, but to support the community, to support everyone's practice here. So I want to start a little bit, I want to be, uh, talk tonight a little bit where I started at the beginning of the retreat, which is this kind of big overview of this practice of concentration, of c- collecting and unifying the mind, so the role of concentration, and then what we do with the concentrated mind. And we've been talking about that, obviously, for the whole retreat, but sp- specifically the last couple of days. So just going further into those themes. Uh, I think we said at the beginning, because there is this unification of theme, we often talk around and and repeat ourselves and uh, say some of the same things, but perhaps you've learned that uh, we don't often hear it the first time. So we can have perhaps another uh, opening to some of these themes. The Buddha talked a lot about practice and and training, and he talked about four kinds of students. Another way of putting it, are four modes of practice. He said there are students who progress quickly, fast, with no pain. They progress quickly with a lot of pain. They progress slowly with no pain. Or they progress slowly with a lot of pain. I don't know which category you think you're in, but I mean, we tend to think, I know I did. I was in the last one. It was like slow and slow and so challenging and difficult and um, really work. I think I've already said this, that I, I used to really view meditation practice as medicine, you know, kind of with cod liver oil, you know, it was good for me, but... It didn't taste good. It didn't, it didn't uh, lift my heart up. But I knew deep down it was really good for me. But I was very judgmental about my practice. Where's the insight? Where's the opening? And I'd hear people going through these catharses in the meditation hall, weeping and sobbing or asking questions about certain experiences. And I'm like, what about me? You know, when is it going to happen to me? And so it can really uh, intensify that sense of, of not good enough. But something kept me going. 
something kept me coming back. So obviously, it wasn't that nothing was happening. It just wasn't happening in accordance with my agenda about what should be happening. And I still have this clear memory coming back. I was living in India and uh, living with my sister. And uh, I went on my first meditation retreat with Goenka. I had to travel from um, McLeod Gunge, Dharamsala, down to Jaipur. It's a whole story about, you know, I didn't even know where the retreat was. Someone just said it was in Jaipur. And it's like, I just went there. Anyway, there's a whole story. I found it with Goenka himself, and it was intense, a 10-day retreat, never meditated before, I didn't have all these cushions and props, I had a folded-up towel, it was incredibly painful, Um, and I had really no idea what I was doing, but something touched me in that retreat, and I I just always wanted to keep going, that was the beginning of of my practice, but when I went back home, back to uh, McLeod Gunge, where my sister was, younger sister, we'd been traveling together for a while, she said to me later that I was kind to her for two weeks. (laughs) And I never know whether that's good or bad. You know, was I not kind before? I think there was that probably. But two weeks, is that good? I don't know. But she noticed that. And I wasn't, the thing is, I wasn't trying to be kind. I don't remember, you know, they didn't teach metta or uh, much about how we are in the world. It was a very strict kind of practice but something had softened in me that hadn't been able to soften before. So I started to feel the value of that, as I said, even as it was difficult. And it wasn't until I started doing longer retreats and samatha retreats and metta retreats that I really felt some shift in my practice, and especially the concentration. It's been invaluable for me in my path and my deepening because... It really uh, increased my faith in the practice and in my capacity to do the practice. And it connected me to the lineage. I felt like the Buddha was my teacher. And I was reading uh, from a 2,600-year-old instruction manual and that these instructions worked, that I could follow them and the experiences that he described, I could have some access to. It was quite amazing. To me and really uh, gave me, as I said, a lot of faith and motivation for practice. And so this training of the mind, when we start to get a sense of what that is and what it takes, is, is really so valuable. And even though, you know, we often say the experiences, they will pass, they're impermanent, I have no scientific proof for this apart from my own experience, but I really do think that the concentration put some grooves in the mind. You know, they have the line that neurons that fire together, wire together. We're creating new neural pathways. And these are ones that are healthy. These are ones that are wholesome, beneficial, and skillful. So I really do feel that. We all maybe have a taste of that. And it's kind of changing our brain waves, whatever, brain waves, whatever kind of rattle state we're in. It, it smooths it out. Maybe it's somewhat temporary, but I think there is a long-lasting, maybe subtle, but long-lasting effect for this pra- on this practice. I know I felt it for me, and, and that's hopefully what you've all touched into, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just a bit. And I've been saying to people, we're not here to learn to be good breathers. It's not about having the best breath. Oh, go home. You should have felt this breath I felt. It was... It's like 
I think I said this thing about Joseph inviting people to come watch him meditate. I forget where I say things. I did some see Julie. Some people remember it. Some people don't. Doesn't matter. It's not that exciting for someone else, but it's not what we're here for. And really, we're not even here to have particular experiences of concentration, of depth or absorption. I tell you the truth, we're not even here to get concentrated, ultimately. We're here to learn how to train the mind, how we do this, because that's what serves us. That's what we can take with us to see that it's possible. And I've reminded a few people over the course of these 10 days, the Buddha always said, this is the gradual path the gradual training. There's no quick fix. There's no, if you do it this way, you'll zoom on to jhana or enlightenment. There's vitaka vichara, step by step, moment by moment. We are conditioned, our culture tells us the story that we should have everything we want right now, right? And it's even exacerbated with, you know, we've talked about the prevalence of, you know, instant this and that, cell phones and texting and, you know, posting videos and Facebook and all of that stuff, it doesn't serve us in this practice. It doesn't serve us in life, I don't think, but it certainly doesn't serve us here. I saw a, a cartoon. I, I collect meditation cartoons, and there's more of them these days to collect. It's obviously getting more in the mainstream, but this is a cartoon with a crowd of monastics. They're all in robes, and they, they like it a, a protest or a rally, with their signs and everything, and there's one uh, standing up on the dais with his megaphone, and he's shouting, what do we want? And they reply, mindfulness. When do we want it? I thought that was very appropriate. And it's true that, you know, the only time we can have it is now, but we want it, right? We want it now. So, whatever level of concentration we have developed here, the bad news is you can't take it with you. It doesn't get packed up in the luggage and wheeled down the road. But the training and the, the knowledge about this terrain, that is really valuable because that you can take with you. You know your own mind and heart a little more deeply, a little more clearly now after these days of practice. And so I say, if I had to choose for you, any one of you, whether you had this amazing piti experience, P-I-T-I, or you learned this terrain and how to train the mind, I take training any day because that will serve you. And maybe you're having a pity party, P-I-T-Y, about not having had a pity party, (laughs) P-I-T-I, but it doesn't matter. Or, you know, jealous about, you know, other people's jhana jamborees. We're always having these ideas that everyone else is having a great time and I'm the one struggling. Believe me, from our side, we know everyone here has had challenges in this practice. Everyone here has hit a wall or found it difficult or wondered whether they could do this. We project so much onto other people and what we need to do is turn around and see You know, what's been a benefit for us? And I really think that these more subtle states of calm and sukha can be actually more valuable, even subtle pity, than, you know, these often uh, um, 
challenging, even overwhelming experiences that, that seem kind of exciting, but no, it's really understanding how to collect and unify the mind, how to cultivate. And the other thing that's so true is we can't judge our practice while we're still here, while we're in it. And it can be so easy to get to this point of the retreat and go, well, you know, did I get my money's worth, you know, or I put in all this effort and what have I got? We can't know. We won't know until we go home, maybe a week, 10 days, a month even, and we start to see, ah, I have more skillfulness in this area, or more subtlety, or more collectedness. So we're training here. We are practicing. It's why we call it practice. The Buddha called himself a trainer of those who wish to be trained. So again, optional. You all signed up wanting this training. And I love this description from his own practice and experience on his night of enlightenment. I spoke a little bit about his enlightenment uh, night earlier in the retreat. He said, when the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, and steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to knowledge of recollecting my past lives and knowledge of destruction of the taints. So it could do a lot about what he was directing his mind to, but I want to point to these three words, malleable, wieldy, and steady. These words are often used to describe the concentrated mind, and they really point to the amazing potential of this mind, your mind, if it gets trained, malleable, able to be shaped. You could think of a potter shaping a pot. What we often say about a concentrated mind is you need to be really careful what you put into it. It's very um, malle... That's all. I just said that. It's very um, susceptible to input. So especially as we are here at the end of the retreat and going home, need to take some care. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But even as we're here, you know, to really uh, protect this mind and, and take care of it. Wieldy means it's responsive. We often talk about being able to wield a sword. It's like an instrument or a tool. And to discover a mind that has that capability, for me it was mind-blowing that I could direct my mind to certain experiences or depths and it would respond. I remember working with one teacher and describing how long it took me to you know, get to a certain state or calm down or whatever it was. And she said, you know that state, just go there. I'm like, what do you mean? It takes me 10 minutes, 50, half an hour. No, no, if you know it, if you've embodied that state, invite it, open to it. And lo and behold, the mind was relatively collected and unified, and that was possible when the conditions were right. So this mind can be responsive in that way. And then steady, steady. And we've talked about this a lot. Able to stay with experience, see more clearly, ride the kind of wild horse of the mind, more equanimous, this one-pointedness, is this aspect of steadiness, of calmness, of collectedness. So these are the qualities that we can train and develop in this mind. 
And so what we've been doing here is learning this, how to really collect and unify the mind and have it rest gently on the breath, this lightest of touches. Again, maybe just for moments, but I think all of you have had some sense of that. And then what it's like to open up, as we did a couple of days ago, to really be open to all experience, all of the six sense doors. And so we know this terrain now of meditation. I think I might have said something like this in the talk, can't remember, that I find that many people think they're doing Vipassana. We call these Vipassana retreats, but they're actually doing breath meditation. They're doing samatha. And they will go to another object, a sound, a body sensation, when it disturbs them. I think I talked about being on pain patrol. It's like, what's wrong? Okay. And I'll be with this. I'll be mindful of this. So it'll go away so I can get back to my breath. That's not true Vipassana. True Vipassana is open to the changing experience. Samatha is calming and collecting. We want to know how to sustain with the breath and then how to fully let go and have this... um, curiosity, the sense of investigation, this brightness and uh, openness to all experience, and know how to move in that terrain. Again, I remember on one uh, retreat where I had, I think I was practicing for six weeks, and I'd done a few um, concentration retreats, so I thought for this retreat I would do two weeks of concentration and then four weeks of insight practice. It's a very standard way to do this kind of practice. But when that 14th day came, I did not want to let go of the the calm. You know, it was like the breath was a refuge. And it seemed like I'd been in this warm, cozy house and someone was saying, you know, or no, they weren't saying, there was this huge storm outside and I had to go out into the storm, into, you know, all of this uh, activity And so I was very reluctant to let, but I'd made the commitment, I said I would do it. And what was interesting in opening up, because the mind was collected and calm, it was actually quite delightful to see the balance of mind that could be with changing experience. And maybe you you had a taste of that these last couple of days. So we learn what a collected and unified mind is like, and as we keep emphasizing, it's not tight, it's not narrow, it's not constricted. It can be very spacious. Some of you talked about sitting outside, eyes open, and just taking in the vast view that we have here and how the mind can really still and unify around that vastness. Um, But in that, we're still able to simplify the perceptions and still the mind. So we're not, you know, oh, there's a fir tree and a pine tree and this bird and a cloud. and We're just taking it all in and finding the stillness in that experience. This is one of the art of this kind of practice. And so we're learning how to do that, how to take something that's as you could say, complex as the body, or even the breath, and find the stillness there, simplify the perception. So we're learning this for ourselves. It's the only way we learn, right? We can sit up here and tell you all kinds of stuff, but unless you learn it for yourselves. So this is 
you know, the power of this practice is we do it for ourselves. We all, we often have a tendency to look outward, you know, the comparing that Philip was talking about, how am I doing, you know, compared to everyone else, the questions in the hall or what the teachers are saying, looking for answers, looking for affirmation, am I doing it right, what was this, how, you know, Again, in my collection of meditation cartoons, there's a subgenre of meditation cartoons that I call the guru subgenre, which is, um, and it's amazing how many people do variations of it. They, 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 they all look different, but they have the same theme. It's usually a man is the guru. I haven't seen many women in that role. It's usually a man, a white beard, mountaintop, mountain is a triangle with snow, like a little wavy line, cave. Uh, beard, loincloth, and the seeker has always got the knapsack and they're coming up the steep hill and kind of peering over, and you nearly always know they've asked a question, you know, asked the guru a question. And so the, the caption usually is just the answer. You can kind of guess what the question is. So here's one I saw. The guru had a computer by his side, and he, uh, his answer is, until this year, I couldn't find the meaning of life either, but then I switched search engines. Not so helpful. So, as I said, we do tend to look outward. Uh, you know, and many people come in to interviews, you know, describing these very uh, powerful experiences, and then the end of that is, what was that? I don't know. You know, you had the experience. And sure, you know, we can put it in a framework and understand it, but, uh, you know, the next thing, is that normal? And my answer always is, Yes. You had it, therefore it's normal, it's in the range. Uh, it's a very wide range of what can happen to people in meditation. And it's hard for us to really you know, know where someone is unless we're tracking them over time. So just to know that's the, the framework. And what we're doing here is again, seeing, encouraging you, supporting you to find what's beneficial for your practice. Again, holding it in this big framework of the Buddha's teachings, not just, you know, I like it, therefore it's good, but really this beneficial, wholesome sense of practice. And so learning how to do that for ourselves, learning how to rest the awareness in this simple object, in this case of the breath, with the lightest of touch, the minimum amount necessary to actually land here. And that's the, the, the amount of effort that we need. And as I said in my earlier talk, we, as we explore this terrain, and if, if you do any reading in the teachings of the Buddha, the texts that, that are available, you will see how much these teachings and practices are woven through what the Buddha said. I prepared this handout because I think it's just really helpful to see uh, you know, the sort of greatest hits of the Buddha and concentration is in there in, in so many, well, it was in all of the ones that I chose. I'm actually running out of room on the paper. I could have put, I could put more on there, but I, you know, these are kind of, as I said, the greatest hits. And why I think it's also helpful to see it in this way is you see the different unfoldings. They, they often start from different places, from faith or mindfulness or virtue. And they move in different directions, even though there's some patterning that we can see. 
that's that's helpful. And even though I've depicted them as you know lists or in a linear way, most of them uh, have feedback loops. They're they're um, supporting each other. You know, it's not like one unidirectional. They're really much more complex than that. But I think what you can start to see as you look at your own practice and look at these lists is there's a pattern in the development of meditation. And it's like a bell curve. There are these foundation factors in many of the lists, which are the engines of that practice deepening in the um, factors of awakening. They're the energizing factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy. In the jhana factors, our old friends, vitaka, vichara, they're the ones we can do with some intentionality. We can actually put wise effort into cultivating those. So they're the engines. We get those going. We support those in our practice through skillful means. These descriptions often peak with some strong experience. And it's often pity, can be other things, but it always tends to more calming, always tends to more subtlety. This is really important for us to remember because we can get intoxicated or excited by these peak experiences, but the Buddha's teaching is always more calm, let go, more simple, more subtle, pasadi, tranquility, sukha, contentment. These are the onward leading factors, ekagata, one-pointedness. And they're usually resultant states. We can't make them happen. They're out of our willingness to just stay steady in simple practices of paying attention, whether it's more open practice or just with the breath. Then these resultant states, in their calming nature, deepen into concentration often into the absorptions. But the concentration in these lists is often a turning point. Turning point to equanimity, turning point to wisdom. Basically a turning point to seeing more clearly. So really helpful for us to get this as a pattern. Because we we want the fruits, right? We always want to get to the absorption or the, you know, the, the freedom. But it only comes from doing this sort of of developmental work, but this steady willingness to be doing this development. It needs patience. And we see the value of these calming factors, that they're also onward leading. And so all of us have developed some deeper level of calm. I know that. You know, again, you might judge or think not enough, but it's all relative. As long as there's some... Um, experience of how to do that, what really it's like to seclude the mind. And it's true that as we practice here, um, there are conditions that support that calming. The world hasn't gotten more sane out there, I'm afraid to say. Um, And so we can appreciate how these conditions really support the calming of the mind. But I do feel, as I said before, that this practice has longer lasting effects and is more resilient than we might think. Some things we can't take with us, the peak experiences certainly, but some resilience, some capacity I think is is here. Again, I was on another 
retreat at the forest refuge sitting for six weeks doing concentration and my husband Guy Armstrong was teaching over at uh, sis- the Sister Center Insight Meditation Society the three-month retreat. So he was, you know, teaching and in the world. And we were actually trying to refinance our house at the time, reduce our mortgage payments. And so some point into my retreat, we hadn't had any contact. I get this note, we have to go to the bank to sign papers. <laughs> That's a big deal, you know. And it's like, whoa, you know, be outside the office at 9 o'clock. Like an appointment. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so I get dressed up, you know, because it's freezing at IMS and stand out there, and it's like, whoa, I'm in a car and we're driving. It's very exciting. Anyway, you know, a guy is very calm and he knows I'm on retreat. We just chat for a little bit. We dri- drive into town, local town, Barry, get to the bank. We, you know, we didn't talk much, but just, you know, doing okay, yeah, yeah. And we get to the bank and he turns to me and said, You brought your ID, right, didn't you? And I'm like, ID? <laughs> and I felt a bit like, if you know, uh, Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi trickster, and he goes to the bank to withdraw money, and they say, first we need to see some identification. He pulls out a mirror and goes, yep, that's me. <laughs> but the Barry Savings Bank was not going to accept that. So guy sort of says, okay, turn around, drive all the way back, go up to my room, get the thing, come back, you know, on retreat you don't have ID wallet or whatever, just didn't even cross my mind. But that was kind of a double trip then, right, in and out, in and out. And I got back and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be so stimulated from this, and it was signing all these papers and documents and things. And I walked in the door into this, you know, beautiful retreat center, and it all just dropped. It was amazing to see that the mind you know, just found its place of well-being. You know, maybe it been a little ripple, but nothing like what I expected. So, again, I've been saying this so that we don't have expectations of yes or no, will or it won't. If the conditions are supportive and if we allow ourselves that possibility, the sense of collectedness can actually really serve us as we go back into our lives. So... We develop this steady, collected mind, and just as we did a few days ago, we turn it, we open it. It's it's a tool to use, so we turn it to changing experiences. And the classic um, thing to notice or that we see can be directed or it can just happen is what we've been talking about, the three characteristics. Permanence, not satisfaction, unsatisfactoriness and not-self, or the colloquial version, not permanent, not perfect, not personal. This is what we see. The mind that has this kind of stillness sees clearly, and we start to pick up that without you know, having to make effort because there is that clarity. And the steady mind can stay with that. You know, there's both a the um, challenge of that it's all changing, but also can be a little unsettling. But we have this willingness or this ability to keep penetrating, to keep understanding, to keep bringing experience to. It helps us to be with difficult experiences, with pain in the body, the heart, the mind. Again, that steadiness. We have some resilience as we open to those more difficult experiences and it enables us to work with the mind 
hardest object for us and the most important. Thoughts are so alluring, so fleeting, so powerful. A concentrated mind is actually able to be more steady with that. So it's a, it's a tool that we use. We use it to deepen wisdom as these lists point to. So it's a foundation for any practice that we might do. Any meditation, you could say anything we want to accomplish in life, requires some degree of this kind of mind, of this kind of collection, unification, steadiness. And as I said, you know, we start to discover how to flow between the collected, the secluded, the calming, and then the open, the curious, the investigation, and know when is one needed, the other, how to flow between them. And the jhana factors that we've spoken about a lot, now that you have some sense of them, you'll see they can be at play in other meditation practices that we do, and you can actually use them. Um, Certainly the vitaka and vichara, but just your knowledge of this terrain to deepen our experience, to sweeten our experience. I mean, for me, when I learnt from these practices the value of inviting the mind into contentment rather than, you know, the medicine image that I used earlier, it was just such a different way of practicing. It was so helpful. And as I keep saying, this is a tool that we use um, even though it has these benefits uh, itself, the benefits of calming, the deepening of equanimity. Um, Philip spoke last night about ekagata upeka, one-pointed equanimity. They're kind of uh, really talking about the same experience. It can bring a sense of well-being or ease to the meditation because we know how to work in this terrain. But as the Buddha said back then and as we know today, concentration doesn't uproot the kalesas, the torments of mind, the the poisons, the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. We need to turn this concentrated mind to insight, to wisdom. And so concentration is not at at the end of any of those lists. Yes, it is, you will say, because it is, in the way I've depicted it, the Eightfold Path. But what's the other way that path is depicted? A circle. Because it doesn't end with concentration. Concentration informs right or wise view, samaditi, um, which is basically the wisdom factor. So in this cyclical nature, it's, it's not the end. It's certainly not the end of the path. But, again, what's helpful is that these lists show the many ways that deepening can happen, the proximate causes that lead us into uh, the collecting and unifying of the mind, and then how we can use that to um, turn to insight, develop wisdom. So there's definitely patterns there, you can see, but some variations, different ways of framing. The Anapanasati Sutta, which is at the end of that um, Uh, your list. What the Buddha says about just being with the breath uh, is that it will fulfill all four foundations of mindfulness, of body, of Vedana, of mind, and of dhammas, just through being with the breath, 
and the whole path of practice there. One we've talked about uh, uh, already, uh, Adrian mentioned it, Philip mentioned it, is transcendent dependent origination, the second to last one. Um, I'll talk more about that in a moment. So it's just saying, again, there's not a right way or one way. You know, the, all our minds will develop a little differently. And it's so I love that there's this flexibility, but what we see is insight goes more deeply into a concentrated mind. A concentrated mind is able to see more clearly. It's like you've taken out your 20-watt bulb and you've put in 60 or 100 or even bigger, and then you shine that light, right? You can see more clearly. Did you find that in opening up your practice, that there was more clarity, more steadiness? Some nods, some, yeah. You know, it's great to feel that. This is the potential we have here. So I love this teaching, Transcendent Dependent Origination, um, because it's a kind of spin-off from another teaching that I found so valuable and amazing, actually. I think it's a brilliant teaching that the Buddha, again, just, you know, made up. Dependent origination, which is this description, 12 links, of how out of ignorance we keep perpetuating the same patterns, craving, um, leading to further becoming, and then more suffering, and because we kick and scream in the suffering, the ignorance just gets deepened, and the cycle just keeps continuing. So that's a, a deep and powerful teachings of the Buddha. To transcendent dependent origination, I often feel it's kind of like that dependent origination is a circle and it takes off like kind of fireworks from the same place of suffering where dependent origination has this suffering ignorance, suffering ignorance, suffering ignorance. Transcendent says suffering path, suffering freedom. And it's an inspiring uh, teaching because it starts where we often find ourselves, suffering. We've talked about it a lot here, first noble truth. Life is difficult. We'll all be challenged. We are challenged. We have challenges and we will have more challenges, heavenly messages, old age, sickness and death. But what this teaching says is, if we understand suffering, the practice of the Four Noble Truths, understand it to stand under it, so we penetrate it, really understand its nature. As um, Ajahn Chah says, there's the kind of suffering that leads to more suffering, so we're on the wheel, or the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. We find a path, we actually, suffering directs us on, and the Next factor in that list is faith or sadha. So out of suffering, we find the path and we have trust or confidence that we can walk that path and find a way out of suffering. So it's radical to make that shift, not be caught on the wheel. What's important to know about this teaching and dependent origination, people often see it and think it's causal. If this factor happens, it will cause that factor to happen. But it's not their conditional. So what it's saying is if suffering is like this, meaning suffering has been understood, then faith will be like this. 
faith will be developed out of that kind of suffering. So conditional, not causal. Um, really important. And in this list, there's a the, the turning that, again, the others have mentioned of concentration samadhi leading to the wisdom fact, the wisdom starting to function, yata, bhuta, jnana, dasana, knowledge and vision of things as they are. And this is taking that concentrated mind and having direct insight. It's not theoretical, it's not conceptual, it's not someone else's idea of what this experience is. We know because we see it from ourselves and no one can take that knowing away. And it's really seeing um, the Dhamma, reality, the truth. And again, in that is all of the wisdom teachings. I've said three characteristics, four noble truths, the lists that, that some of you may know, dependent origination, understanding of karma, yata, bhuta, jnana, dasana, knowledge and vision of things as they are, this penetrative insight. Um, and it changes what this kind of insight does. It changes our understanding. It changes how we relate to ourselves, how we understand the world. It, it leads us from suffering to the end of suffering. And then there's the next few steps, which again, I think Adrian spoke about the other night, but just to highlight, because it's sort of counterintuitive for us or foreign territory perhaps for us, where that insight, seeing reality clearly, leads to nibida. And this Pali word nibida used to be translated as disgust or revulsion. And most of us would be like, well, I'm not signing up for that. That doesn't sound like a balanced state of mind. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, our great uh, translator, as he really reflected on what was being pointed to, has changed his translation to now disenchantment. And I think that's so skillful because it's not a matter of bringing aversion to experience, but breaking the spell, becoming disenchanted, no longer under the enchantment that things out there are going to bring us permanent happiness. So disenchanted, leading to dispassion, viraga, this cooling out of the flames, the force of desire. And Andy Olensky, another great um, Buddhist scholar, says that this word nibida literally means without finding. So it's, it's not, you know, disgust, revulsion, it's just seeing that in these things that we thought were so great, so wonderful, not there. And this is from Andy. He says, There is a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms, nibida. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow, the dog gnaws on it for some time before they finally determine that they are not finding any satisfaction in the bone and they turn away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting, but rather that the dog's raging desire for meat will not be satisfied by the bone. They were enchanted by the prospect of gratification as they scrape away furiously at the bone, but when they finally wake up, to the truth that the bone is empty of anything 
that will offer them satisfaction, they become disenchanted and spit it out in disgust. So the disgust is not about the thing itself, but just we're not finding what we thought would do it. It's like when you've had some grand project or even a relationship or maybe a job or something and you finally realize it's not working out. It's not giving you the satisfaction that you hoped it would or even perhaps that it used to. And we start to see that. As you reflect on your life, just imagine, remember a few of the things that used to bring you a lot of happiness that you kind of shaped your life around. I mean, just some ridiculous examples. Coming home from school and watching cartoons. That was like happiness, right? Gilligan's Island. (laughs) The Addams Family. Imagine if you now had to sit down and watch hours of that. You know, maybe they'd still be funny. I I haven't seen them for years, but that used to be kind of a high point in my day, you know, to watch Gilligan's Island. And I'm dating myself here. I actually never went to a disco, I don't think. But, you know, those things you used to do, going out to nightclubs or parties or whatever. I mean, maybe you still do. I know I don't. I was visiting Australia, my family there, and my young niece, she was probably 18 or something, I was getting ready to go to bed, and I came across her out in the living room, and she was all dressed up. And I'm like, what are you doing, Sarah? We're just about to go out. Like, it's it's 10 o'clock at night. She said, yeah, they don't start until 11. I did not have any envy for that, right? So we start to see it just doesn't do it. it, it we're not, you know, it's not discussed. It, it's no interest, no interest in that. Sometimes there's a little poignancy. It's like, oh, I used to like that, but I don't anymore. So giving it up is not difficult. It's actually essential. So it's not forced, sad, you must give that up. You want to let go. And as Munindraji would say, let go, it's going, you know, it's changing. You hold on, you'll suffer. So we see that for ourselves and start to orient to a higher happiness, a greater or a deeper source of well-being. Really, this possibility of contentment. And then these lists all, or many of them, go to this fullest or highest freedom or happiness that the Buddha experienced and that he taught. Freedom, liberation, emancipation, relinquishment, awakening, all these different words. But the simplest expression that he also used was a mind or heart free of greed, aversion, and delusion. That's what he was pointing to as a possibility. And that's what we can taste, even if it's momentary. And perhaps you've tasted it here. Nothing needing to be added nothing taken away. This mind that's content in its simplicity, in the bite of an apple, you know, the sip of a cup of tea, the felt sense of a breath. We have touched that mind state and that's the direction this path goes. And what's amazing about the Buddha's teaching in these maps is They meet us wherever we are. Wherever you are, in your practice, in your interest, there's a place and a way 
that these teachings will support us and then lead us on and challenge us because that's what they do. They challenge us. And what is it leading to or pointing towards? Developing wisdom and compassion. Philip mentioned this this morning. These two kind of wings of the bird, wisdom and compassion. And Thich Nhat Hanh will say, and the body of the bird is mindfulness. It's what enables these two expressions to develop. Wisdom knows the truth of suffering. Yata Bhutta Yanadasana sees clearly. And the natural response of this wise heart is compassion, is kindness, because it knows suffering. And it's found freedom in that depth of penetration. And then its natural expression is kindness, is compassion towards ourselves and towards others. So it's not about stepping out or being separate from or distant or aloof but actually a more full engagement. Because as I said earlier, this is not about how we live in the world. I mean, sorry, how we are on the cushion, you know, enjoying this just for our own benefit. We practice for our own benefit and the benefit of all, the well-being of all. And so it's how we express ourselves in the world, how we are in the world. And this... This process just deepens, just deepens as we give ourselves to it. We have to continue to deepen our understanding of suffering and the Four Noble Truths. And then the circular nature of all these teachings, as I say, they reinforce themselves. I often say you could, the teachings are this very complex, amazing structure. If you took any thread and followed it deeply enough, it would lead you to the heart of all of the other teachings. So they all reflect and support each other. And if you start right where you are, with the body and mind just where it is, as the Irish say, the road will rise up to meet you. The practice and the teachings are all available. And we're so blessed, as Philip was pointing to this morning. And then it's up to us. They often say the Buddha solved his problem. It's up to us. He ge- and then he gave us this open-handed, uh, vast set of teachings. And now it's up to us. But this is the direction the path goes in, with this steady e- effort, gentle effort, light touch, only one way, as the Buddha said, only one direction this path goes, to more freedom, more happiness, more well-being, more peace and contentment. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, I heard it from him, he maybe didn't make it up, but Bhikkhu Bodhi said, there's only two things you know you need to be successful on this path. You need to start and you need to continue. Wise advice. So I'll close with uh, just a few words from Master Layman Pang. He's a ninth century... Layman, he was, which is unusual, but deeply realized and lots of these great pithy teachings, living his life as a layman, his wife also very wise. So this is from Master Layman Pang. When the mind is at peace, the world too is at peace. Nothing real, nothing absent. Not holding on to reality, not getting stuck in the void. You are neither holy nor wise. 
just an ordinary person who has completed their work. So let's let the words settle into silence for a moment. So, again, time for some walking meditation and your last chance to come to that last formal sitting of the day and share in the chanting something so precious and powerful about joining our voices and uh, sharing that aspiration of radiating the Brahma Viharas. Always a nice way to finish the evening. And another reminder to hold the container of the retreat. We're still here. It's still time to practice. Maybe the energy is a little different, but we're still in this container. And so we support each other by staying in the silence through tomorrow morning, through breakfast. Once you leave the dining hall, it's okay to have some conversations, but in any of the buildings, please maintain silence, especially as you come into the hall. Um, We'll be back here for the formal closing at um, 8.45. So really rely on each other to support our practice and hold the silence. And we're silent when it's appropriate, and then we open up when it's appropriate. The time will come quickly enough. Okay, thank you.